Hello and welcome to a special podcast for the Georgetown Literary Festival. This special podcast is brought to you for International Women's Day. And you are with me, Rizal Rozhan. Um, so a little bit about me. I'm uh, Sabahan from Penampang, or we call ourselves Penampangites, <laughs> for all you Penangites. <laughs> um, and I studied gender uh, studies in University of Malaya way back when, and then I used to work with a women's rights organization called Empower, uh, who is who are based in Petaling Jaya. So uh, my focus on gender equality is more on um, bringing up the topic of uh, positive masculinity or um, encouraging more men to be more uh, better men, basically. Um, but I'm not the special person that you need to meet today in this podcast. Uh, we should be listening instead to Dr. Vilashini Somia, who is an anthropologist uh, in gender studies program at the uh, University of Malaya. And Dr. Vilashini is also uh, Sabahan. Um, she will talk more about it later on. And her work focuses on the underrepresented narratives of Bornean women, migrant, indigenous, and other sexual and gender mi minorities. So on today's topic, we are actually going to talk about her latest book, uh, which was published by Paul Grave Macmillan. And this book is on irregular migrants and the sea at the borders of Sabah, Malaysia. So you might be asking yourself this question, right? Why are we talking about irregular migrants on International Women's Day? There's a relationship um, that we will, be, we will uncover more on later. Um, so stay tuned. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Um, and it's always wonderful to sort of have an opportunity to you know, talk with you or talk about the book specifically. <laughs> but I'm doing great. Yeah. I hope you are too. Yeah. All right. So on uh, today's topic, actually on on this book, right? Uh, so I read um, some, part, uh, some parts of the book and I was particularly interested in chapter three. We'll go more about that. But um, maybe before I talk too much, uh, Vila, maybe... Explain why um, why this book why why because you're 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 a lecturer on gender studies right you could have chosen any topic um, yeah. you could have chosen any topic to study on maybe the maybe even on on issues of orang asli in Peninsula Malaysia but why on irregular mi migrants in Sabah Yeah, thanks so much for asking that. I you know I think that is um, probably the the one big question that people tend to ask me and I think that. That really mirrors, um, I guess, the socio-political landscape from Sabah. I think for many of our listeners today, if you don't know about Sabah, this is a good place to really start. Sabah is um, one of two Bornean territories, I use the term territories, uh, belonging to Malaysia. Well, not belonging, but a part of Malaysia. I correct myself here. Um, and, you know, um, together with Sarawak, they, they formed Malaysia in 1963. Um, you know, and any Sabahan would know that Malay that Sabah is uh, a state so very rich with flora and fauna. You know, it has, you know, just like its uh, neighbor and cousin Sarawak, uh, you know, really rich with this sort of indigenous heritage and things like that, which I celebrate through my mother, right? Um, and I'm part um, indigenous. Um, but, you know, um, one major crisis that plagues Sabah um, from 
the 1970s till today is this huge issue with the influxes of um, uh, the migrant community or the irregular migrant community into Sabah. Um, and so big is this issue is that it continues to be politicized. It bleeds into larger socioeconomic issues, right? It, um, you know, and there is a lot of xenophobia, I think, these sort of xenophobic anti-migrant narratives that uh, exist um, in Sabah particularly are always politicized. But I think, you know, at the same time, it, it, it tells us it is a microcosm of these sort of inequalities on the ground. And um, what is a feminist scholar if they don't pay attention to inequalities generally, right? So I think from a very young age, uh, like Rizal, uh, I too am a, am a penampangite, <laughs> you know, um, if that is a, a district part of the greater part of Kota Kinabalu, which is the... Um, uh, capital of Sabah. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, my mom would drive me to the market, uh, ironically pegged the Filipino market, right? Um, and you know this place, right, Rizal? And when you go there, you know, yeah, I'd yeah. be, you know, sitting in my car and just, you know, well, well, my mom's car and looking out and the this sea of kids who are about my age, maybe about six or seven years old, and they're, you know, they're 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 helping, they're they're selling stuff. They they're not in school certainly, right? So I think at a very young age, I was very intrigued by them that there was this community of kids that were just like hanging around, and what seems to be a sort of childhood fantasy for many kids who do, who want to flout going to school. I think, um, very quickly becomes a reminder that. There's something not quite right in the state of Sabah, right? Because these are kids that are also sort of, you know, that they are, there is a degree of neglect that um, they would have endured. And it's very, very visible on their physical bodies. Um, so later on, I think as I grew up, this became a fascination for me because it's, while while the larger conversation is that, you know, there is this, we and you know, because I think, and I'm not going to go too much into this. So for those of you who are interested, Google it or check out previous books that we've been part, that mm-hmm. I've been a part of, is that um, there's always this huge conversation about if you are Indigenous, it is a Sabah for Sabahan fight. Uh, but at the same time, that needs to sort of um, be very wary and careful of migrant people who are sort of coming in, who have been used and utilised for other political and more other political uh, agendas through, say, you know, the granting of, um, um, the illicit granting of citizenship and so on and so forth. So the yeah. long and the short of it is this is why I arrived here, because I felt that the conversation was incredibly two-dimensional, certainly after decades and decades. And that is how I embarked on it research-wise. That is how I ended up moving to a completely different part of Sabah. Sabah is huge. People think that it's not, or at least they. for anybody who's maybe never left the peninsula of Malaysia, the imagination is it's a, an incredibly small state. It is not. It is huge, right? And many Sabahans themselves don't go from one corner of Sabah to the other, right? Result many, and yes, and, I and that is why. <laughs> yeah, I the think. The last time I went to Sampona or Sandakan was maybe when I was twelve. That was about you know, eons ago. <laughs> <laughs> Without revealing your age, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's that's exactly it, right? So I think mm. I I felt that the challenge was in trying to find out what life was on the other side of the territory. And um, I think, you know, going in, I mean, obviously 
people go and learn about things with preconceived notions, with assumptions uh, that they carry because of so many reasons, um, and to sort of dispel them. So this book, I think, is sort of, you know, a, 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 an interrogation of that. Of course, there's a huge sort of like theoretical academic side that we're also not really going to go into today. But I think mm-hmm. at the core of it, this is how I arrived at this book. And and I have to thank you, uh, Vila, for writing this book because uh, for someone like me who's half um, Kadazan and half Filipino of Filipino descent, right? Like you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier on, um, when you're born in Sabah, there's sort of this uh, this sentiment that you hold, like Sabah for Sabahans. But for me, it's always been a challenge to try and balance, you know, my heritage because mm-hmm. I think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, some parts of me are, are people who actually migrated last time. And there's some parts of me who who say that this land belongs to me. Um, who do I listen to? How do I navigate my way? So uh, thank you for this book. And uh, we go straight into chapter three of this book, which is around um, about what, what, why I especially like this chapter was because the storytelling um, from you, Villa, is very, very fun. Because I just feel like I'm actually right by the sea uh, and then I can listen to the tides, you know, going, um, tides going up or going down. And then I can also feel um, the sort of emotions that I can try to empathize with the emotions that these women um, that you interviewed um, are feeling. Um, so if you haven't read uh, this book, please feel free to um, buy the book. Uh, how, no, how can or, they or find just, the book? No, hmm. just, um, well, you know, this book costs a lot of money. So officially, uh, <laughs> it would, you know, you would have to buy it through the, the, the how do I say, um, the official website, which is on uh, Palgrave or Springer, um, the international publishers. Uh, but what I always encourage my Malaysian friends to do is get in touch with me personally, and I will help you acquire the book. Mm, all yeah. right. Yeah. So on chapter three is um, on bilang yang nakal nakal kami. We speak of naughty things. Yep. It's about female empowerment through the tides of the sea. So, uh, like I mentioned, the storytelling made me feel um, the female empowerment through the tides of the sea. And to sort of start this, I think uh, I just need to outline the structure that we are going to discuss. Uh, not so much structure, but more on like what we are going to focus on. So, um, there are three things that I would like to um talk about from this chapter, which is the Rumah Merah issue. You know, uh, Rumah Merah is, if you don't know, is the detention center for irregular migrants. Um, yeah, so Villa will explain more later. And then um, the concept of guardianship and, you know, how modern we are, but there's still this concept of modernship that, modernship that um, is, is placed upon women. Um, placed upon women by the guardianship is by the men. Okay, but never mind. We'll, we'll go into that later. And the third one, the most exciting part of this conversation would be about sex and candy. You know the song? I smell sex and candy. candy. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So we'll be speaking a little bit about that too. So um, let's go to the first part of the discussion. Yep. So as I was reading this, Bila, um, one thing that uh, you know gives me this image of um, horror is this rumah merah because mm. um, as a Sabahan myself, I heard of you know some of my um, my uncle's contract workers, contractors, uh, the, the people who help him with like plumbing, all that, mm-hmm. um, help with uh, building the house. Um, some of them are so scared to to be on the road, uh, meaning like they don't want to take the uh, buses, they don't want to take the vans to, to go anywhere unless it's with my uncle. Right. They are with my uncle because they're scared to be, de- um, to be detained and to be brought to the Rumah Merah right. detention center. Right. On this, um, maybe share a little bit about this chapter, Villa, and then the relationship to the detention center. And sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take it one step back and sort of mm-hmm. also um, share with our viewers that, um, you know, this book has is, is called Pelagic Alliances because um, apart from sort of uh, an interrogation or at least an understanding of migrant life, um, one of the um, things that um, it started off, it started off as a PhD thesis, right? This book is an academic book. But, you know, I was very lucky because in the field that I'm in, um, anthropology, area studies and whatnot, there is this um, new approach to writing academic books in a way that doesn't feel so uppity. <laughs> you know, it's not, you don't want, you want people who aren't in academia or, you know, not interested in necessarily overly intellectualized books to pick up the book and say, I got that. I understood that, you know. Um, And one of these, one of the things that I initially started off by doing when I first went to Sandakan was I wanted to study detention centers. I wanted to study the repatriation um, system because uh, in Sabah, um, or at least uh, for Malaysia, one of the quote-unquote most successful policies or programs that we have for migrants who overstay is to um, repatriate them, to send them back. This can be very problematic, especially if you're born here. You, um, you know, and Riza talked about something that is very true to my heart as well, being biracial. Being biracial. I, I, I'm not sure... If I've, you know, especially for the younger ones, I've ever met a quote unquote a pure anything, right? Somebody has right. Uh, many, you, you know, no. possibilities of an interracial. Yeah, you you'll know someone who's a mix of this and that. So this idea of purity also for me seems to be quite a. Uh, it's, it's very ironic in the scheme of things, but I digress. So I went there because I wanted to study that. And I also wanted to study the way in which people get deported in the day and come back in the night. And it sounded so easy, but in fact, you know, one of the chapters covers this. Um, but it is a very, very laborious um, um, sort of experience to go through and incredibly traumatizing particularly for men who do it, right? Um, this idea that you have to be incredibly strong and because you're born a man, you have uh, this inherit inherited strength. But it's, it's so traumatizing and it's very painful, right? That um, there's, the language of articulation is limited. Um, anyway, when I arrived in Sandakan and while I was pursuing this angle for this particular study, one thing I had, the, the, the starting point in which I tried to find people who've been deported was that I had to speak to their families who were left behind. 
and they were often wives with children or partners. And as you can see, that's my that's my little kitty cat share. She wants to join us for the podcast today. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, they'd be left behind. And they, there was a name that they gave themselves, right? Tinggalan. Tinggalan. Tinggalan meant to be left behind. And this sort of Tinggalan idea was really internalized by these women that I'm left behind. I'm not divorced. I'm not a widow. I'm left behind, right? And mm. this is an in entirely different framework of survival, I think. And so after a while, it it, it sort of became a thing where um, I, I began to have more of a relationship, more of an interest actually in these women than the men that I had come to study initially. It had told me that there were other things to sort of look at. And this happens for any sort of research or, you know, analysis that one does. You think it starts off at A, but it really takes you through the rest of the alphabet at some point in a way that you would have never um, seen coming, mm -hmm. I think, right? So um, this is how we arrived. And so these were the very same women who gave me an opportunity to go to detention centers whenever they would visit their husbands. And that experience really sort of shocked me because, you know, the, there, is there is order within the chaos and the chaos is large, right? And it's a lot of negotiation. As women, they had to negotiate taking the day off, you know, taking their kids out of alternative learning centers to travel to the detention center, negotiating with people who have been in line at the detention center to get a, a number to go in since, say, four o'clock in the morning, right? Um, how you negotiate with your family that this marriage still makes sense or it doesn't, right? A negotiation with your partner when you finally see them as de detained individuals behind bars for like, five minutes, once every maybe two months, because there is a huge financial element around it. Uh, and it really taught me a lot about this entire system at place, because it's about negotiating. And when you're done negotiating, um, what are you left with? You're left with your thoughts, you're left with your emotions, you're left with your anxieties. And you've got to navigate that along with raising the family alone. You know, so I think the the relationship that they sort of had with detention centers was that it was this really hard, cruel, tough um, place, right? This 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 location, but they had to continue to build a, a sort of rapport and relationship with this particular site because that was the only way to sort of have contact with a person that, you know, at the same time on many other levels, like any relationship is sort of going through something, you know? So mm -hmm. they, it was so multi-layered was basically what happened. Right. But um, one quote that I like from this part of the um, of the, the Rumah Merah issue uh, is the relationship between, you know, the state um, and um, leaving behind this, not leaving behind, but creating Tinggalan women. And, but... You know what comes out of it is the these women felt more not felt but they have to persevere to be more empowered uh, they mm. are they're actually more empowered after uh being left behind not to say that i condone it you know but um the quote is kami sendiri sakit kami sendiri juga kena kasih sihat balik tiada paham kami tiada paham hati kami tiada di sini paham hati kami 
We are in pain, but only we can cure ourselves. No one else here knows what's in our hearts. So this was said by Wati. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe uh, shed a little bit light of, you know, why Wati said this. So, you know, I, I, I also think we've been using the term <laughs> Ruma Mera uh, mm-hmm. Rizal because clearly you and I completely understand Ruma Mera. But Ruma Mera right. literally translates mm-hmm. to Red House. Uh, and mm-hmm. they call it the Red House because it, it the, the detention center is literally painted red. But, you know, yeah, I think, okay. you know, uh, yeah, metaphorically, you know, red means danger, right? So I think, you mm-hmm. know, it's very interesting because that's what they call it. They call it Ruma Mera. Uh, but yeah, I, I like that quote because, you know, I think there's this thing about um, surviving as a woman of a particular class or from a particular community, which requires you to... Um, sort of keep everything in. This is, I think this is expected for many women from many walks of life as well. Uh, it is a privilege to vent, right? I, and and this is horrible. It really shouldn't be a privilege to vent. But it is, I think, most of the time. Because venting, I think, is sort of uh, identified as it, it takes up time. It takes up mm-hmm. other people's emotional bandwidth, I think. Mm-hmm. And that um, if I'm going to spend all that time venting, then I'm not going to spend any time moving on or thinking about more important things. Because um, mm-hmm. central to everything for somebody like Wati is that I've got to survive, you know. So if I'm going to sit here and sort of talk about this pain that I'm feeling, number one, no one's really going to get it because I, I sort of mentioned that earlier on. You're, you're, yeah. you're caught in a very strange world where you're neither a widow, widow nor are you a divorcee. You know, it's sort of, you're suspended. The status is sort of suspended to a certain degree. Mm. And people want to assume that you're single. And yet you, you've not come to that point on your own. Right. And so this this conversation about agency is really missing, I think. So mm-hmm. it, it's about also self-curing because nobody also really understands. And having to, you know, I think this group of Tingalan women are incredibly lucky because they had each other. This particular mm-hmm. village uh, went through a number of um, uh, immigration raids. Mm-hmm. And this is why there were so many women that were, you know, and the men also had sort of gone out to work in... Um, I guess places that were more that were targeted more by immigration officers. So yeah. uh, the the number of women who've had their their partners sort of taken away from them um, mm. were much higher than say other places um, that I visited. So you know they they were in a sense quite interesting. I think to 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 sort mm. of follow and study. But I think she she said that because she knew that it was um an a, a, a phenomenon and experience that. I mean, how many women were there that were in this particular village that were there? There was like less than 10 of them, you know, in a mm-hmm. sea of maybe a yeah. thousand people. Mm-hmm. How else do you share these emotions, I think? Yeah, so so that's about, um, you know, uh, self-healing, um, more on, the, on an individual um, level, mm. at an individual level. But on the community level, uh, we go to our next part of the discussion is about the guardianship. Right. This concept of guardianship, because as I was reading through the pages, right, um, one thing that just irks me is, uh, unfortunately, this one character who has five wives and 18 children. Yes, the Tokadi. That's, 
<laughs> and he's a Tokadi somehow. It's so weird because in you know, as a Muslim, I'm taught that you know, the max you can go is four wives, but you know, this one five. Wow. Um, and he's a Kadi. Kadi is the one who marry people off. So again, a lot of irony here. But um, so this concept of guardianship is where all the villagers seems to think that. You know, Tinggalan women shouldn't be left alone. They should be married off as quickly as possible because yeah. she might be in trouble. Um, she might be, you know, eliciting um, uh, unmarried sex because people are just are horny for her. It, yeah. that's those kind of things. <laughs> I just don't understand that concept. Um, and it goes to this one person, this one of the women saying. Uh, because this this woman was basically saying to other Tinggalan women who said, you know, yeah, it's good that we are married off. But she was saying, no, why are you defending all the men who wants to marry us off to other men? Um, we are all treated like cows. We are all like cattle for sale. Yeah, cattle for um, sale. Yeah, so yeah, maybe share a bit on the guardianship. What do you think about You know, I, 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 I thought that particular line and, and that wasn't the first time that she said it i've heard her say it mm. numerous times you know and uh, i thought that really sort of cut deep because there is this you, you start to realize um i think or at least for me i i began to sort of see that it, it wasn't uh, as if they they you know they had no idea about where their position was in that community they were fully aware they were fully aware mm. that um, as Tinggalan women, they were a social burden. They were a social burden because, number one, there was this belief that uh, other women were looking at them as threats, right? Suddenly, just, you know, you are a threat because there is, and and, and from the Tokadi itself, um, 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 you do, there is this, clearly this practice of, I can marry again, and I will, right? And women will sort of um, follow my my every women demand. Um, right. But also, you know, when you become a threat, it starts to become really uncomfortable in the village. You know, it, they'll just, you know, you're just, you're this, you're this um, threat that I don't want to deal with. And the sooner you stop being a threat, the better, right? And on mm. the other hand, there, as, as you've so rightfully put it, there are all these men who are just like, yeah, you know, <laughs> new meat in the market, you know? Um, and then there's this other one layer, this in, in, uh, layer of uh, members of the family who feel that there is some sort of secondhand em- embarrassment or burden mm-hmm. or shame that they are faced with when there is this, you know, this person who should be uh, within uh, the confines of uh, a, a, a relationship, a, ma- a marriage, and is not. Mm-hmm. So there is there is this expectation, uh, not just from, say, um, you know, from sons even. And uh, mm-hmm. this conversation came up because one of the Tinggalan women was told and reminded by their stepson, I think you really need to remarry. Because this is mm. what would people say, you know? Um, you know what's ironic is that this is this is not subject or just unique to the migrant community. This happens a lot exactly. in, in other communities in Sabah. And, it happens a wanna, lot. And I want to plug in here that um, actually I 
I did, uh, I'm guilty of doing the same to my mom. My mom, mm. basically my dad left our family where in 2003. So it was right. a long time ago, right? Even before he passed away in 2012. So um, along those years, I asked my mom, mom, why don't you want to remarry? Why don't you want to date again? You know, um, And the thing that inspires me or just just opens my eyes was my mom's answer she said why would i want to be tied to another old baby <laughs> and then for me it was just like wow that's it took me a while to process it but i was just thinking yeah right uh, now she actually has the time to enjoy herself and that's what i kind of see from these women as well um is they actually have more time to bond among themselves the the women who have uh, the sort of situation same situation the thing yeah. women yeah. and um, they actually are more empowered to talk about other things that are more sensitive which goes to our next part of this discussion Mila, <laughs> do you mind if i go to the, go, go ahead yeah. i know you've been i know you've been waiting for this section of the conversation <laughs> for like a while now you're keeping it professional and now we get to like we get to wave our freak flag so go ahead <laughs> right so now we're gonna talk about sex and candy yep. okay one two three I smell sexy. Candy. candy. Yeah. Okay. Get yeah, that out okay. of your system. So on, <laughs> right. So on this sex and candy, right? Um, it's more on um how interesting it is for me to uh uh kind of learn that these Tingalan women, what they do is they um they will have sessions where they just uh, congregate among themselves yeah. and then they talk about uh, this is when they whisper to you and Bila, they say, eh, we're going to talk about nakal-nakal things. Yeah, gonna naughty things. things. We're going to talk about naughty right. things. <laughs> so it must, be, it, it must have been very, very interesting Bila, because there was kind of a break- breakthrough in your research, no? Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, a huge yeah. breakthrough, right? Because yeah. um, my training was to sort of go in and get to the to the sort of meat and carrots immediately. What, you know, mm. detention, you know, life, you know, this sort of painful life of being a migrant, you know. Mm. I, I carried that. I was very guilty of that, right? And, um, you know, in the downtime, when I sort of also felt like they were, they were, they were entertaining me with the heavier conversations, right? You know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and it, it turned out, that's not what they want to talk about always. I, I was the downer in that in that gathering. I was the one, oh man, that's the one that wants to come in and just interrogate, you know, want me to relive this trauma over and over, which is literally what I was doing, you know. And and I think in, in hindsight, when I sort of look back at it, it teaches you to be better at the work that you do because um, that's what, mm-hmm. you know, that's what life is about, right? You, you you have to improve the way you do things. And I mean, it, mm-hmm. it gave me a really huge lesson because um, don't talk about things that people aren't interested in talking about if you want to know more about them. You know what I mean? They, they want to tell yeah. you something about their lives. And this was mm-hmm. it. And, and, you know, this was a huge, huge lesson for me because I, a person who, you know, incredibly privileged incredibly privileged. I don't think I say that enough. I'm not incredibly privileged because I own billions of dollars. Wink, wink. Um, I'm incredibly privileged because I'm sitting here in a podcast talking to you, uh, my beloved Rizal, uh, in English, right? Uh, We've had education. 
We've gone to, uh, we've, we've been in higher education institutes. Uh, and, and we're talking about a book that I wrote that's been published by an international publisher. It's incredibly yeah. privileged. I don't, I never for a second sort of, you know. And um, in my incredibly privileged life, myself and friends that I know have had conversations about sex. So why yeah. is it? that when I go into this community and these women are just hanging around makan, you know, kacang, eating, eating um, peanuts yeah, or snacks yeah. or whatever and just like, you know, drinking coffee or tea, um, having a conversation about their sex lives, why is that shocking to me? It really yeah, shouldn't right. be. It really shouldn't be. And yet it was because it was incredibly lighthearted you know, these women were talking mm -hmm. about previous sexual experiences and they were cracking jokes about it, right? Jokes in ways yeah, that, funny. you know, really funny. I think, you know, one of the really funniest one was um, where one of them was saying, you know, my mom said, you know, uh, on your first night together with your husband, um, mm -hmm. don't scream because, you know, it, it might hurt. And she said, he was very gentle with me. And so I, I didn't scream. And yeah. one of the funny, Elizabeth. funny persons, Elizabeth in the group yeah. basically said, oh, maybe you were screaming, but you weren't screaming the way you thought you'd be, you know, and I, <laughs> that, that, that caught me off guard. It really caught me off guard because this, there was mm. a sophistication in the way they were really discussing this. And I was, mm -hmm. I was um, sort of very aptly, um, you know, reminded that this, this is life, right? These, these were women. Yeah. And why shouldn't women be talking about sex? openly amongst themselves, regardless of the sort of income bracket that they belong to or the class that they, you know, the, the class structures that they are, they sort of fall uh, under or in. Why why shouldn't they have access to that? You, you know what I mean? Mm, yeah, so I was just talking about this to my girlfriend last night as well. Um, and she was saying, yeah, we still can't talk about sex in public. You know, people yeah. will look at us differently. They will think that we are... Um, in this book you call Sundal. Sundal, uh, yeah. And, and they Sundal refer to themselves like, as Sundal. Sundal means like yeah. a slut, right? <laughs> yeah. So on on that one, um, my girlfriend said that. And then it just uh, clicked into me that it, it doesn't just happen uh, in this um, village area where when they were talking about this uh, loudly, someone from someone that their neighbor said, like, you know, don't say... Uh, don't talk about sex loudly, right? Uh, they were being apprehend apprehensive about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And but I was thinking, but all men, not all men, but a lot of men in Kota Kinabalu, when they were having, when they are having their coffee or tiger beer, <laughs> they are talking about sex loudly, <laughs> very very loudly in the open, and it's like a, a mark of masculinity that uh, a mark or that they come of age. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's so unfair too. I, I feel like it's good that they are talking about their sex life. And I'm I was actually very happy when I was reading this. Um not because it's about sex. <laughs> I know Bila you wanna <laughs> say that. <laughs> but it, it because they were happy uh, they, they had ad agency to yes. tell their story. Yes. So and I, I, I love that. I, mm. I agree. I think, you know, the, the, the important lesson to me, and I think people who, who eventually read this chapter is that um, I, I don't think they were unaware of the sort of the taboo, the, the, the social taboo around talking about um, their sex lives. 
I, I'm absolutely certain they're fully aware of it. You know, and mm-hmm. and in the conversation, in or at least in the way I think the chapter is written, is that they will sort of like in time in times where there are riskier um, um, parts to their stories, they will you know speak in husher tones. They will you know sort of um, uh, look around and show that the children aren't necessarily listening. But it was an mm-hmm. outlet. There is a kind of uh, maybe humorous, maybe really uh, vulnerable, even. Um, honest resistance that comes from this, you know, and, and it's mm-hmm. part of the sort of self-healing uh, um, way of, of 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 getting through the position that they are in. I want to sort of remember this because I don't want to be ashamed of it. And I think this is yeah. this was for me um, so incredibly powerful. It was powerful mm-hmm. because they have, you know, taking a step back, and you're right. You're right. You will hear somebody in the kopitiam or in the coffee shop boasting, <laughs> boasting. Yeah. You know, Mister Mister You Mister You know who has it, who's talking about it, probably has no teeth and no hair, and he's like, "Hey, you know, <laughs> exactly. I got around to it." And I'm not. I'm. You know, this is not to sort of shame anybody look wise, but you know, the mm. the sort of the the. The, the the position the positionality that women are, are in I think also in 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 a place like Sabah is that mm-hmm. you don't talk about it because you know you don't you're not entitled to talk about it. you can't own this um, mm-hmm. sexual experiences because that sort of liberation and agency it's not something that is um, very us it's not something that we should possess it's a masculine trait it is a yeah. position of power. You know, it shifts the power dynamics if you talk about it, uh, which is why I guess, you know, if you were to watch, I don't know, Sex in the City and, you know, a bunch of white women sitting around in New York talking about, you know, because they ha- they can do that because they have a level of um, power, yeah, right. privilege yeah. that these women don't. Yeah. So you can't talk about it if you're, you're yeah. there. And I think this chapter reminds us that, uh, it's part of the healing process, but it is a kind of resistance, right? It's looking for yeah. yourself in a place that doesn't seem to have any structure for you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think on that note, right, um, talking about shifting power, talking about um, their um, their sense of agency, uh, reclaiming their space um, mm. in 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 congregating and talking about sex. So um, maybe we are probably at the tail end of our podcast. So maybe you want to share a little bit more about, you know, why you choose uh, changing. Was it about change, types of change as your mm-hmm. last bit in this, uh, in this article? And maybe related to International Women's Day, what are your hopes? for um, everyone, every woman. Sure, that's Asia. that's a lot to ask for in five minutes, I results. <laughs> you really, you yeah, really sort of you like, uh, want to, you know, you want to fulfill your KPI, so it's like, here, go, all these deliverables <laughs> all at once. <laughs> no, yeah, I, 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 thank you, how, thank you for that. Work. No, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about is um, mm-hmm. actually how this is actually an academic book. It's not It's not just mm-hmm. a tell-all, you know, like semi-autobiographical. It's actually an academic mm-hmm. book at the core of it. Um, and right. as an academic, you have to make an argument about something, an intellectual, theoretical argument, which I'm, I'm not going to go too much into. But my overall argument is that when human beings 
are you know left with very little i think when when they feel or they perceive that they've got to sort of they're they're on survival mode all the time that they don't have you know a lot of 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 the uh, accesses to living like the rest of the world when they see themselves as stateless or you know illegal you know and i hate that term because there, there isn't an illegal human being, but yet, person, you know, right? we, a person, I, I really hate that idea, uh, is mm-hmm. that um, you've got to find a way to resist, survive, and empower yourself. So one of yeah. the key takeaways is that um, left with absolutely nothing, they turn to their surrounding. And a lot of them have a very personal relationship with the sea, with the water. And this is the entire idea that that is that. Um, and I think this is also very apt if we, as we go into, you know, COVID-19 past the Arab Springs today. And I think, you know, I, I, I put in the center of my mind things that are happening um, in Ukraine, in Russia at, the, at, at this point that we're speaking is that we are faced with one of the biggest, biggest issues, like biggest crises in the world of our generation. And that's a, a, a migration crisis. Right, that people are being uprooted. There is a mobility issue about it. That there is displacement that comes with it. So this is, while a very old issue, it's exacerbated. I think, and in our lifetime, we will sort of see that. And and as an anthropologist who's really fa- like not just fascinated but very concerned with the way in which we're using very old terms to understand people who are you know quote unquote not original. This is this gives way to in new forms of uh, oppressions and abuses worldwide, right? So, yeah. um, because of that, I I make this larger argument through the various chapters is that when you've got nothing, you've got to turn to something to give you structure. And these women, like the other uh, sort of um, the other segments of this community that turns to the sea to give them other forms of structures. My argument was that in, in very interesting ways, they turn to the, the sea tides that come in into their, in, into their kampongs, into their villages, to help them recover, recuperate, and uh, get closure, right? Now, here's the thing. The end of this chapter doesn't tell you that all these women do get married or they don't get married. That actually is irrelevant. It's irrelevant because they started off, or at least the point that I met them, a whole year, two years, three years before I wrote this book, with, you know, talking about the fact that they never had a say in anything. They never had a say. And, you know, while they were they were married to their partners or, you know, or with their partners, not necessarily married, you know, in that sense, but when they had these romantic relationships with these men and they had families and then they left and they were deported, they still continued to never have a say, you know. And mm. all they wanted was that whether they remarried or not or chose to stay single for the rest of their lives, got a divorce with their husband who was deported or continued to live or maybe moved back to different parts of, um, uh, you know, the Philippines or Indonesia, that was irrelevant. What was relevant was were they able to find themselves? And, you know, to a certain extent, while maybe not in the way more privileged people envision closure, they some quite a number of them had that. They figured things out. And a lot of it was really dependent on the way they, they sort of measured change, they sort of measured progress, through sea tides that would come in, Mm. right? It became a sort of a clock, a different kind of Mm. time structure for them versus, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, January, February, March. Mm. It it gave them a sense of recognizing 
a, a version of themselves in the past and where it is that they go in the future. And I found that incredibly remarkable. Again, you know, yeah. we, we don't always pay attention to the kind of sophistications that exist outside of our privileged circles. And this, for me, was incredibly sophisticated. It is important for us to sort of recognize that women, I think, and, you know, going to your last question about how it is we, we want to see things in um, uh, this this International Women's Day is that um, while I, I urge people to constantly have a, 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 a part of themselves, lend a part of themselves to more, you know, to have more empathy for things that are happening to people who are less privileged than us, is that I think that you also have to realize that the world doesn't run in the structures in the way in which we think it does that people are finding newer ways to really survive their trauma, survive their oppressions, right? Um, and and those ways, are, are, are they exist because they might not have access to more, um, you know, dominant structures that we see, dominant um, forms of institutional help that we see, dominant forms of uh, education or information that we can receive. So this, this sort of recreated new structures exist because they've got to survive. And I think the power of survival is so strong because when you know that you've got to do it, when you've been told that you cannot for so long and you decide to do it at that point, I think this is where we have breakthrough. And what I want mm. and what we should all want for any persons in that position is that they find a way to get that breakthrough, is that we help them, or even if we cannot, that we wish for them that sort of breakthrough. And I think that's really yeah. the core of it. And thank you very much for that. Um, sorry about the million dollar uh, five <laughs> question in one. Um, thank you very much to our listeners as well for uh, tuning in. Um, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, session of the podcast um, from me I just echo everything <laughs> echo everything Dido um, Bila uh, yes um, let's find let's help everyone especially minority communities right find their voice yeah. I think that's our final message for today thank you and see you all again bye thanks so much bye